Hey, good morning. Welcome to church. It's so good to have you here this morning. Thank you for shoveling your driveways and pushing through the snow to be here this morning. Um, so one of the things that's become pretty, uh, I mean, just in, it's, it's evident every single week, um, is, uh, especially since Christmas, is that we are, we are rapidly running out of space in our, in our building. We have 7,200 square feet. Yep, some people are clapping for that. Others of us feel, feel different feelings. But we have 7,200 square feet and, uh, we're using, I mean, we're using everything. We've turned closets into nurseries and we have, you know, we could put a balcony in, I suppose, in this space, but we are, we are out of, we're out of space. And it's a wonderful thing, um, cause God just keeps bringing people who are finding a home here. And I'm really blessed by that. But we're going to have to do something about it. So I'm letting you know that next week we're going to tell you what we're doing about it. It's, it's going to involve a third service, but we're still ironing out the details as far as when and how we're going to launch it and what's going to be needed uh, for us to pull that off. Um, but I just want you to know, very exciting news if you if you love change. Change is coming. If you're one of those people who doesn't like change, um, uh, you know, just come anyway, please. And uh, And we can talk next week about how we're going to... Just continue to to steward the space God has given us as we continue to actively look all over East Atlanta for a a larger place to be uh, gathered on Sunday. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we'll be looking today. Matthew 5 verses 13 to 20. So I'm going to read that section to you and then we'll pray together and then we'll jump in. Jesus says the following to his disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. And no one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, we thank you that every week Jesus calls us further up and further in to what it means to be his people and to live in his kingdom and to be his church and to be his disciples. We thank you, God, that Jesus is always standing before us and inviting us into more. And, and yet, Lord, I'm just aware, even with that idea in my mind, I'm aware of just what fatigue many of us in here feel, what burdens many of us feel that we are carrying in this moment. Lord, I thank you that your son said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, we ask that we would have um, the ability to imagine and to lean into 
the idea that the way that you are calling us to live is actually a lighter way, an easier yoke than what many of us are carrying around. Lord, we, we pray for um, China. We pray for the fear in that nation of a billion people. We pray for um, those who have already suffered and are suffering from the coronavirus. We pray, Lord, for those who just live in fear or who are locked in homes and trapped in cities. God, we pray for your peace. We pray that you would stop the spread. We pray for your healing. We pray for the church in China. We pray that they would be salt and light, that they would live into what it means to be a people of hope and of life. God, we pray that you would strengthen the hands of those who find themselves caring for the sick in Jesus' name. God, we we bless them and we pray for your peace to be on them. We pray that their example and the words of Jesus would stand before us today as a reminder of what it means, of what obligation and priority we have as being your people in this city, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families. So, Lord, we lean in and we ask you to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount for a couple of weeks. The Sermon on the Mount is this really important, I mean, really couldn't overstress the importance of the Sermon on the Mount as far as the development in the thinking of Western civilization. Probably no teaching, maybe Plato's Republic. No, no collection of, of words has had more of an impact on how we understand goodness, uh, justice, um, what is ideal, what the good life is, like we talked about last week. Um, we're going to be looking at the sermon for a couple of weeks. We're not going to go all the way through it, unfortunately, because Lent's going to come and we're going to we're going to go somewhere else. Um, but I just wanted to say, kind of at the beginning, the way to the way to read the Sermon on the Mount, whether you want to sort of side with more liberal scholarship that says it's an edited collection of teachings, or more conservative scholarship that says it's a single event, it's the record and manuscript of a single sermon that Jesus gave. Um, I, I think either way, you can look at it and say this: it's a unified thought. Jesus is presenting to us, and the Holy Spirit has preserved it to come to us as a single cogent idea of what it means to be his people, of how we would live in his kingdom. And so we everything in it informs everything else as we come to this text today on salt and light and the law and exceeding righteousness of Pharisees and scribes. And all of it is informed by what we saw last week, that, that the very core assumption of the world has been turned upside down by Jesus. The epistemological foundation has been flipped upside down because the poor are blessed and the suffering and the mourners and the persecuted are comforted and blessed. And if that's true, then we can just begin with this idea that Jesus is presenting a counterclaim to reality. He is telling you and I that there is a different way entirely of seeing the world. And he's calling you and I to be willing to shirk the version that everyone has told us our entire life. This is how to understand life. This is how to make sense of suffering. This is how to understand reality. And Jesus says, no, there is another way. Because in my kingdom, the poor are blessed. And those who are persecuted are blessed. In my kingdom... Uh, we find those on the underside actually brought to the center. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is very high. If you read it, you, you should come away shaking your head in some way going, who can live into this? This feels impossible to me. But it doesn't mean that it's meant to be seen as something that just proves how bad you are. That's not the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not meant to come to us just to show us how terrible we all are. 
Um, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, the command to be perfect is not idealistic gas. I like that. It's not idealistic gas. It is not a command to do the impossible, but it is, he is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. And so as we look at salt and light, as we look at these high, uh, ideas, commands laid over your life, they are God's vision for you. Like we're starting with this idea that God has a very big vision for your life. It's a life that is provocative and raises questions that lead people to life and goodness and that directs their attention to God. And this is Jesus' vision of, of me, of you. And he was inviting us to live into it. So we begin with this idea. The first thing we see in this text is that Jesus gives us two pictures for this Christian life. And we're going to spend a good bit of time on this today. These two pictures are salt and light. Now, even if you've probably never been, even if you've never been in church, you may have heard like salt of the earth. You know, it's an expression of a person. It's like Flannery O'Connor in her short story, Good Country People. Like that's a salt of the earth person, a good country person, like a down to earth, you know, gritty sort of survivor. That's salt of the earth, you know. And it's this really high like praise for for that kind of thinking. But Jesus's language around salt of the earth is probably not quite that. It's not. He's not just saying, you know, you are the good country people of the world. Uh, but rather he has, he's, what he's using is a, is a, a thing that everyone knows what it is and what it's used for. Salt is a flavor enhancer, of course. It's also a preservative. It was also used for cleaning. It was used for purifying. And so when he says you're the salt of the earth, he's giving this, this image to you and me that our life is, is not only enhancing, it's, it's, it's increasing the flavor and the, the goodness of a thing. Like, cause when you taste something, you shouldn't taste salt. If you taste salt, that's bad cooking. Uh, I mean, unless you're like a huge salt person in here, which I know a couple of you are that carry salt around in your purse. But I mean, most of us, like, you don't want to taste the salt. You want to taste the thing. That's what it's there for. That's what salt does. It, it increases the flavor of the thing itself. And so there's a part of my life in which it's meant to be provocative. It's meant to, to increase uh, the, the goodness and the attention uh, to something other than myself. It's also that my life is meant to be um, consistent with uh, preserving that which is good and um, oftentimes we come to these expressions of salt and light, and if you've been in the church for a while, you probably have heard, like some people will take this and say, so what it means for us to be Christians is we're morally pure people. We, you know, we live sort of counter to the world, and we, we do things our own way, and we hold up things that everyone else has forgotten, and, and so salt and light are used as this uh, other way of basically describing a person who's uh, who's a legalist, a person whose life is very scrupulous and moral and good. But then other churches, if you go in other churches uh, in our city, you'll hear that, no, this is actually about social justice. It's about the impact of the church on society. We're meant to be a lighthouse, a place that is putting forward goodness and beauty. And and it's just both. It's just you don't have to pit one against the other. It's both. Jesus is saying, my my word for you today is that your life is exemplary. It is it's pure. It is, it is unlike others. And yet it is about pushing goodness and life and beauty out into the world. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, he's a, um, he's a theologian from Duke Divinity, uh, a really interesting, really great, sharp, provocative guy who's done a ton of work on Christian ethics and community, and he's worth reading. But I, I was listening to this interview with Hauerwas, and he says, um, I have a really hard time um, sometimes adopting or taking on the identity of a Christian. And that might feel kind of weird to you because he's a theologian and a Duke scholar, and he's a Christian. Um, but he says, I, sometimes I shirk this Christian identity, and, he, and here's why. It's not because he doesn't believe the things Christians are supposed to believe, but he, he says it's because I have such a high ideal, such a high regard for what that term is supposed to mean. He says, if you are a Christian, 
you should be joyful in a way that other people find attractive. If you're a Christian, you should be joyful in a way that other people find attractive. It's not that I go around saying, oh, you should be like me, but that my life should be the sort that makes someone think who has been around me, I wonder what makes that person tick. And he's just very honest. He says, sometimes it's really hard to believe that I'm living that way. If I'm going to take that as my identity, it's hard for me to actually accept that maybe my life is interesting enough, provocative enough, that the source of joy in life coming from me is powerful enough that it actually causes people to go, there's something different about this person. Um, I... I think it's important to distinguish there's there's a difference between like put on joy, you know, like projected joy and like real joy, something that's actually coming out of me. Uh, I, I know how to project joy all day long, and I imagine many of you do too. I know how to turn it on. Do you know what I mean? I know how to like be the way that I think I'm supposed to be, but to actually have it usher effortlessly, naturally from me, that's a different thing altogether. I was not long after being here at this church, um, I was in um, Kroger the big one on North Decatur that um, even they sell linens. They sell everything there. Like you can buy a carousel, you can buy all sorts of stuff there. Anyway, I'm walking around this new grocery store and I'm lost and I don't know what, and I'm not in kind of a bad mood and it's been a long day and I'm tired and I'm not on, you know? So like I'm, I'm my real me. I'm not on. And suddenly I was, I was over by the, the deli or something and I saw someone from the church. She caught my eye and I could tell that she was like, um, she was like, oh, hey, like, are, is everything okay? And I realized, like, I felt super embarrassed because it's like, oh, no, I didn't have time to turn it on. You know what I mean? Does this, is this resonating with anyone? I didn't have time to turn it on and to be who I thought I needed to be in that moment. Instead, like, just my real sour self was coming out. And see, when we talk about being salt of the earth and being light of the world, we are talking about becoming the sort of people who internally are actually full of joy and life and hope and peace so that we don't have to project it it's not a switch you turn on. It's actually who you are. So the experience of you is consistent. And it's integrated. It's something that just sort of flows out of you. That's what Jesus' vision is for my life and for your life. He imagines us being people who others would experience and say, there's something unique about them. I don't know where they're getting their energy from. I don't know where they're getting their ideas from. I don't know where they're getting their vision for life from. Jesus says that there's a visibility to this. It is a, it's an invisible reality that props up a visible expression. And then people will see these good works, Jesus says. He'll see your life and they'll give glory to God. Because once again, light and salt do not draw attention to themselves. No one walks into a room and says, my, look at the light bulbs. How round. Um, but we look at the things that they project. That's what light and salt do. They draw your attention away from themselves to something else. And so Jesus says, you see the good works that a person's doing. You see the quality of their life. And what your attention is drawn to is not to that individual, but to God. That's what happens, Jesus says, when we are living into who we are called to be, uh, salt and light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German scholar, 1940s, uh, was killed by the Nazis. Uh, he writes, the followers are the visible community of faith, the visible community. Their discipleship is a visible act which separates them from the world, or it is not discipleship. And of course, in his context, the visible expression of his faith um, would eventually get him killed. Discipleship as a visible as light in the night, as a mountain in the flatland. To flee into invisibility, which um, some of us are tempted to try to do. To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. And any community of Jesus who wants to be invisible is no longer the community that follows him. Jesus says there's something about your life that's 
provocative, that's stirring, that draws attention to another, that's visible, that people see and respond to. And then he gives this really interesting picture. He's like, but if salt has lost its taste, it's thrown on the ground, it's no longer good for anything. And I think what he's saying there is simply that there's there's a way of actually squandering the opportunity that you and I have to be salt and light. Like salt on the ground is just it's waste salt. And as I was thinking about this this week, I just thought like, you know, what at what point in my life, if I just sort of even just looked at the last week, where was an opportunity I had to engage, to move towards a person, um, to be generous in ways that I, I knew was going to cost me, uh, to, to be present with a person when I was really tired or just wanted to kind of lose myself in my phone? What are the opportunities where if you just looked at the last week of my life or the last year of my life, you would walk past those moments in time like salt on the ground? And you say, that was an opportunity, but it was squandered. It was lost. Because there was a chance to be something, to move into a way, to be light, to be salt. And instead, what happened is I, you know, I took an easier road. I took a less um, fruitful road. Jesus wants you and me to have a vision for our life where uh, nothing is being wasted. Opportunities aren't being lost. Where we are able to be present and step in um, when needed. Jesus drew people to his life with this kind of life. And he calls his followers to do the same. But it gets even more intense than that. Jesus goes on to say that discipleship to him is going to mean obedience to him. He talks about the law and he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And and in, so, and in saying, he's like, and so to be my disciple is to be a person who keeps the law. Which is to be uh, to be a person who 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 listens to what God tells them they should do with their life. That's that's what it means to obey the law. It's not simply looking at the Bible and saying these are some good things that God has for us, but it's to understand that Jesus, as our teacher, as our rabbi, as our leader and our king, Jesus actually understood the Bible to be the binding and authoritative word of God over his life. Um, he didn't just do the things that were in the Bible because they were good suggestions or because they made good common sense, but because he understood them to have authority over him. And he says that nobody who breaks even one of the least of these commandments and then teaches others to do so, either directly or even through their life and influence, he's like, they will be called least in the kingdom. He doesn't say they're not in the kingdom, but he says they're least. They're missing out on what it means to actually be my disciple because to be my disciple is to be the disciple of a person who saw God's law as having authority over his life, which means that it is a person who is generous to the poor and is willing to sacrifice their own comfort for the sake of another. It is a person who lives at a slower pace than those around him or her and who sabbaths and who resists every single day the idea, the belief, uh, the energy and the anxiety around this thought that like somehow like the world depends on me or like if I take my hand off the wheel, like it's going to stop spinning or that like everyone has to have me come through all the time. You just resist it every day. So this is my father's world. He is the one who causes the grass to grow. He is the one who brings the sun out. He is the one who causes the rain to fall. It's my father's world. I'm not in charge. He's in charge. It's a person who uses money and sex and power uh, in ways that are the way God commanded them to be used. Because we understand and trust that the creator of these things had intended uses and purposes for them. It's a person who pursues peace and doesn't use violence. Who doesn't strike back when struck who seeks justice and refuses to prosper through unjust gains. It's a person whose chief allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and that allegiance to that kingdom is over any national allegiance or any political party or any personal identity or any person in power or any human law. It doesn't mean we're disobedient to those things. It just understands that like the thing that is most true about me 
is not whatever identity or whatever group I might class myself in, whatever tribe I might feel most at home in. But the tribe in which I feel most at home is the citizens of God's kingdom. And Jesus says, this is what it means to be my disciple, to walk in these ways, to keep even the least of these, and to teach others to do so with my life. It's very serious. It's very sobering. It's, I think, meant in every way to sort of push us back and make us go like, whew, that is really hard. That feels really hard. And then it gets way worse. He keeps talking. He says, finally, that unless your goodness, unless your righteousness, unless your obedience surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, his desire for our obedience is more than skin deep. He's actually asking you and me to become people who do not merely keep it externally. Because here's the thing about scribes and Pharisees. They were so good. No, if you knew them, which it's hard to even think of like a, like a relevant sort of metaphor for us today. But they kept, they were scrupulous. They kept the law perfectly. I mean, we can see later on, if you read the rest of Matthew's gospel, you can see that they actually, there were large parts of the law that they didn't really know what to do with because they were ambiguous. Because when the law is love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with your God, that's, that has a lot of wiggle room in it, right? Like that's, that's unclear what exactly that means. But when it says like give 10% and fast this many days and pray this many times a day and wear this sort of hem and have whatever, like those things are easy to follow and they were scrupulous. They carried themselves as law keepers and everyone understood them to be supreme at keeping the law. And so I've just, I mean, I've always imagined that when Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I think there was just a collective like, (gasps) like, how is that possible? It's impossible what you just said. But what Jesus is saying is so, so matter of fact, he's saying, it's not enough to just do the stuff. I actually want the heart. I want it to flow out of a heart. In fact, next week we're just going to look at a whole bunch of texts to talk about. It's not just enough to not murder the guy in front of you on 285. (laughs) It's not just enough to not cheat on the person, to cheat on your spouse. It's not just enough to, to, to not like go around blasting everyone. How is judgment living in your heart and taking up residence in your heart? How is resentment and anger and bitterness and lust living in your heart? These are the places, Jesus says, this is the main battlefront. This is the place where the war is being fought. Because it's not simply enough to do the right things. I want your heart, I want your heart to be in alignment. And listen to me, this is so cool. And this is what it is to be a Christian, just to be really clear. This is what separates Christians from, from even other faiths, is the belief that what, what a Christian actually is, is a person whose internal world is becoming more and more like the internal life of Jesus. So that I begin to feel and think and will and desire as Jesus thought and felt and willed and desired. So that I begin to do the things that I could not do otherwise in my own strength. It's huge. Jesus is inviting you and me to actually have our internal lives tended to in such a way that we begin to be the people who naturally, maybe even effortlessly, begin to do the things that he called us to. Dallas Willard, who's um, book, The Divine Conspiracy, is, is about this sermon and specifically about this idea. Um, it's worth trudging through. It's a very thick book, but it's, it's worth at some point in your life making it through it. Um, Willard says this, Jesus knew that we cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. Right, just let that be like a word of freedom to you. 
Jesus knew that we cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. To succeed in keeping the law, one must aim at something other and something more. One must aim to become the kind of person from whom the deeds of the law naturally flow. The apple tree naturally and easily produces apples because of its inner nature. Can you just imagine yourself like getting to a place of emotional health, of spiritual depth, where actually your instinct response, your instinct response is forgiveness and gentleness, not needing to, to harbor, not needing to get away from everyone so you can clear your head because you know you, you, otherwise you're going to react in a way you don't want to, but just like you would actually become the sort of person who naturally, effortlessly, like apples coming off of an apple branch, you become the sort of person who lives into these things. Can, can, can I even imagine that? This is the most crucial thing to remember if we would understand Jesus' picture of the kingdom heart given in the Sermon on the Mount. Actions do not emerge from nothing. They faithfully reveal what is in the heart, and we can know what is in the heart that they depend upon. Unless your goodness, unless your righteousness... Unless your faithfulness and obedience surpasses merely external obedience, we're going to miss out on the kingdom that Jesus is offering to you and to me. Which I just want to say in closing this then, the call that Jesus gives to us in this sermon, and this word that comes to us today, requires community and the Spirit. And I'm not simply saying that because those are our two main initiatives that we're thinking about this year again and again, how we become people more in touch with the Holy Spirit and how we become people who choose to live in community. I'm saying that because that's actually how it works. That is what you and I need in our in our life. This word was not given to a bunch of individuals. Jesus didn't write personal emails to everyone and say, this is the Sermon on the Mount, but he spoke to a family, to a community. And because he knows as a person who has always lived forever in eternal community. He knows that the way that you and I are wired is to do this with one another so that we can actually help and support and challenge one another and keep one another in this place. Uh, I, 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 it's not simply enough for me, like, in my own willpower to, like, muster up whatever energy or false whatever would be a, a part of, like, choosing to, to, to love my enemies and to pray for those who persecute me. But if I can be in a community of people in which I can be honest about these things and I can have people praying with me and supporting me and I can be supporting them and praying for them, maybe maybe it's a little bit more attainable. Maybe Jesus' big picture of the church as being this, this community of brothers and sisters, this family, which seeks to do life with one another in ways that actually build up, this is Paul's language, that build up one another in love. Maybe that's how we actually begin to move into this sort of life, to become salty people and luminous people. And finally, it has to, it requires the Holy Spirit. You have to have the power of God in your life to do these things. Um, I don't know about you, but I can just like, actually, if you're, if you're paying attention to this stuff in you, I'm sure this is true for you. I can just tell when I'm like in touch with the Spirit and when I'm not. I mean, it's just like clear as day to me. Because like, my whole, my whole disposition is different. When I, when I'm aware of and drawing life from the Spirit, Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, do what I say. If you love me, do what I say, and I will ask the Father, and he will send to you an advocate, a comforter, a strengthener, a paraclete is the Greek word, one who comes alongside and supports and enables. If you love me, do what I say, and I will ask the Father, and he will send to you one who will make it possible for you to do what I say. And so come Holy Spirit. 
Like, there's no way to live into these words. There's no way to live into this vision. There's no way for us to be the sort of light and salt that God envisions for us. There's no way for us to be people who are faithful in our obedience to Jesus. There's no way unless the Spirit comes. And we increasingly open our arms and our mouths wide. I was reading in John yesterday, at the end of his gospel, Jesus appears in John 20 in the room with his disciples. And he just, and it's this incredible picture. I've said it recently, I think. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then it says he breathed on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a picture from Genesis chapter 2, this, this idea. The whole way your Bible begins is with God forming something lifeless out of clay and breathing the ruach, the spirit, the breath of God into the nostrils of this person and then becoming a living creature. And Jesus' invitation to you and me, so many of us are trying to do this without this. He wants you to be a person who increasingly takes deep breaths of the spirit of God and lets God's power and presence become the animating force in life in my heart so that I can walk in ways of faithfulness, so that I can be a person who raises questions like what makes this person tick, whose life is provocative enough and curious enough and good enough and holy enough that I actually can bless those around me. So let's stand together and let's ask for the Spirit to come. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.